News Talk 1110-993-WBT. I was informed. Did he give you his name? Ryan. Producer Ryan. Did the uh, the individual, was it a man? Well, I don't want you to assume gender. So the human birthing or non-birthing person that called, um, did they give you a name? I believe his name was Robert. Robert. And Robert said that I needed to know what I was talking about. Correct. That if I, and what was it, that if I enter an open door into his house, if his door is open and I walk in, that's breaking and entering. Correct. Right. And so uh, we go to Robert now. It's interesting. So he did not want to come on the air to, sh- to share this legal advice. He did not. He wanted to give it to me. Do you feel more, I don't know, legally informed? I guess he watched an episode of People's Court before calling in. That's possible. His name and just... Oh, whoa, what the... <laughs> what was that? Oh, you know what it is? I still have this feed open from the court. Sorry. <laughs> that was my bad. I meant to do this for you, Ryan. I meant to play the rim shot, but that's okay. It's totally fine. Oh, so, I, don't, I don't get it? Oh, that's so true on so many levels. It really is. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I got like a half of one. I'll take it. I'll take it, Pete. There that was it. All right. Um, that was terrible. So resetting the topic. No. Uh, so, Robert, uh, I, I don't know whether or not uh, the statute that you kind of, well, I was going to say cited, but you didn't cite it. So the statute you relayed, the law that you relayed, uh, to Ryan, uh, I don't know if that is or is not the statute in Georgia. I don't know if that's the statute um, in this particular case. There was, it was never mentioned as that that I saw in any of the uh, the arguments. But here's the problem with with you relying on that uh, on that statute or that that idea of a law in the Ahmad Arbery case, which is you don't know if he had a right to be there because it's not your house. That's the problem. That's the problem. He could have been a worker. You don't know that. This is why you are not the cop in that situation, right? That, like, you're, you're a neighbor and you see something happening. You are not legally required to go over and point a gun in someone's face and start questioning them. Much like if I were walking around... And you came up to me and put a gun in my face and started asking me questions. I am under no legal obligation to answer your questions. It doesn't matter if you think you deserve to know the answer to something. It doesn't. You don't have that right. Now, there's the whole citizen's arrest kind of uh, law that they, which, like, some of that stuff, like, those arguments got real in the weeds. I read some of that stuff. It's like, ugh, it's just a mess. But, um... Those guys did not know whether or not Ahmad Arbery had the right to be on the property or not. In fact, if he, if, if he had been on the property a couple different times, it kind of makes sense to think that he was a worker. You would see him back there again. But I don't know. That's the thing. Me not knowing whether you have the right to walk around this empty house that's under construction, that doesn't, um, that doesn't give you the right to stuff a gun in my face and and interrogate me about it. Let alone chase me through the streets and then shoot me to death. Right? Like that's 
But you might be right on the law about walking into an open door. Like if someone, by the way, in someone's, you know, finished house versus a house under construction that's, you know, basically stripped down to the studs and that sort of thing. I think it's a little different. And if nobody's living there, it's a job site. and Someone's walking around. They're not taking anything. Like you just watch them. Just go over and watch them. You can go over and watch them. And then you watch him walk away. And when he walks away, he hasn't stolen anything. End of investigation. <laughs> Seems pretty, I don't know, like non-lethal way to handle it. I, that, but that's just me. What do I know? Right? Just a radio host. Here is uh, an interview. This is uh, Michael Schellenberger. And he's on with, um, well, I don't know his name. Doug McElway. Yeah. Doug McElway. This is from the Washington Examiner. And uh, he's talking about his book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. It is presently ranked number one in Amazon's urban planning category of books. Yeah, I mean, I moved to San Francisco in 1993 because I wanted to work on progressive causes. I still love the state, but I don't feel moral living in California anymore. I feel like my taxes are going to unethical activities. You know, the bottom line is I show that in every civilized city, They do not allow open-air drug scenes, they arrest drug dealers, and they mandate drug treatment as an alternative to prison for people that break the law, like public camping, public defecation, public drug use. I show in San Francisco that this is what liberal cities like Amsterdam and Lisbon do, that this is not some right-wing thing, that people that uh, consider themselves left of center should support uh, making our cities livable and saving lives. And I really wanted to understand what what was the reason that progressives were giving for not taking these kind of practical, sensible actions. What is what is the reason? Why are they doing it? They see these problems around them. I mean, at bottom, it's just this victim ideology, and it's almost it's just really as dumb as it sounds. I did it took me some time to really figure it out, but it's not very complicated. It basically the idea is that you can categorize everybody into victims or oppressors. It's racist because they categorize all people of color as victims, um, unless, of course, people of color are being killed by other people of color. I uh, was just noted today that, you know, one of the reasons that they give for not arresting the drug dealers is because they're from Honduras and they're mostly undocumented immigrants. They're not white, but they but the, the official ideology says that these drug dealers are victims, which is absurd. They're here voluntarily. They're making tons of money. Many of them are building homes back in Honduras, and they're killing, literally killing people. 700 people are dying every year in San Francisco alone. And so it's, this, it's just this really dumb idea that, that you can categorize people as victims. And it used to be when I was part of the radical left and the progressive movement 20, 30 years ago, we still idolized people like Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and Gandhi because we saw them as heroes who overcame oppression well, now there's a wallowing and a kind of celebration of victim status. You see people even competing over who's the bigger victim. This is really as stupid as it seems. It's, it's lamentable, but that unfortunately is what's going on. And so there's this idea that um, everything should be given to victims, including the means to kill themselves if that's what they want. And nothing should be done to actually enforce social norms or demand some kind of responsibility. All right. So one thing to keep in mind here also is that Uh, The designation as a victim does not apply to victims of crime, (laughs) apparently. Uh, I got one more soundbite from this interview that Michael Schellenberger did. We'll get to that in a minute. First, let's get over to Boomer Von Cannon and talk about some traffic. Have you gotten a bike yet? 
What are you waiting for? Please, 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 please get a bicycle. Go buy a bicycle for Hancock's Bikes for Kids. Tuesday, December 7th, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. at Bank of America Stadium, WBT, the Carolina Panthers, WSOC-TV. We're all going to be collecting the bikes for the kids, for Hancock's Bikes for Kids. Year 29? 28. I never know how to start counting. Do we count the last year? We collected the... Okay. So it started 28 years ago. So this would be the 28th. There you go. Uh, And if you donate a bicycle... You're going to help make a kid's Christmas fantastic, right? The problem is China. Well, I mean, yes, but the supply issues and all that, supply chain stuff. And uh, so there might not be a lot of bikes around. So if you see one, buy one, do it now. So we don't, you know, have no bikes. Really need your help. Go to WBT.com for the details. Thank you very much also for folks who have, uh, donated in the past. If you're planning to donate now, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, again, details at WBT.com, Tuesday, December 7th at Bank of America Stadium. Um, okay, so Robert called back, right? Robert called back and... Oh, well. <clears throat> so he called back to say that I can, that I'm a, he gave me permission to say as much BS as I want. That's what I heard, right? That's the message. That is it. You have the green light. I have the green light to spread as much BS as I want. Robert gave me permission, right? What did he say? Exactly. That was basically it. You got the golden ticket. All right. I just want to make sure that I'm not misconstruing his point here, his, his, his intent. I've, given, I've also given him two opportunities to actually come on the air and, and, and know. So Robert called in at the beginning of the, or I guess at the, yeah, probably like 20 minutes ago now. Yeah, the very, very end of the one o'clock hour. Very end of the one o'clock hour. And he said that, I don't know what I'm talking about, uh, that there, that uh, if I walk into his open door, that that's uh, breaking and entering. And I said, I don't know if that's the case, but here's the problem with that is that you don't know whether or not Ahmaud Arbery had the right to be there. If you're the neighbor watching that, you don't know if he is a worker. You don't know if he has a right to be there or not. You don't. They didn't. They said they didn't. <laughs> right? I mean, like, and maybe it's him again. Um, but what's interesting also is that this is such a profound legal point that Robert has raised that the defense for all three of the men. They did not raise this point themselves, interestingly enough. They did not raise a breaking and entering defense. They did not say that. I wonder why the lawyers, who would know, I think, in Georgia, they would know the Georgia law and they're representing these guys. I would think that they had probably the skill set to know that this would be a defense, but they didn't raise that as a defense. Um, They said, though, like one, Jason Sheffield, a lawyer for Travis McMichael, said that his client had seen Mr. Arbery at the partially built house probably about two weeks prior, and that he saw Mr. Arbery move his hands towards his waist as if he may have a gun. That was it. That was what he saw him do. And then the lawyer suggested that Arbery's presence in the house constituted burglary. And under that law, burglary does not require that anything actually be stolen. You just have to enter with the intent to steal something. Hmm. 
So not breaking and entering, but burglary. Maybe that's what Robert was talking about, not being a lawyer and all. Maybe that's what he was referring to, that it was burglary, not breaking and entering. That's possible. Even so, listen to what the lawyer for the defendant, now convicted, said. You just have to enter with the intent to steal something. Do you see a problem? Do you see a problem with what the defendant's lawyer just said? You have to enter, here it comes, with the intent to steal something. But Aubrey never stole anything. There's no record of him stealing anything out of that site. So how would you know that that's his intent? Well, that's why we wanted to question him. So you didn't know his intent. You're kind of making our case for us, which is probably why they all got convicted today. Anyway, I, I feel pretty confident in, in, yeah, in how I see this case. Let me go to Michael. Yellow Michael. What's going on? Hey. hey. How you guys doing today? Good. What's up? Hey, I just tuned in right when you guys were having this debate over the, uh, uh, the legal uh, definition of B&E. And by no means am I an attorney. I would like to say nice. That. Right. Well, join the club. That's what we're doing here today. We're all non-lawyering. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, to my understanding, and I'm a well-read individual, I'm almost 50, um, B&E actually stands for uh, breaking the threshold and entering the building. Mm. And it goes all the way back to colonial law, which goes back to British law. Um, of course, here in the States, you know, in, in North Carolina, and I guess that case was in Georgia, yeah. they were right there in line with, you know, 13 colonies. So those laws have been on the books for hundreds of years. And to my understanding, it means if there's a structure built, whether there is a door in place or, um, you know, the, the, the place where a door would be, mm-hmm. that is considered to be the threshold. What if the walls aren't up or I can walk through the, like, if there's no doorway cut, what if it's just like, like the, 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 the beams, the studs, and I just walk through the studs? What about that? Well, right. And going back, yeah, I mean, whether there's an actual door partition in place or not, the threshold would be where the door either is or would go. Right. But what if I walk in an area, if it's just studs, they haven't even done that part yet. Yeah. Um. Now, that's where probably my, my knowledge breaks down a little <laughs> bit. But as far as, like, an actual structure that has been completed, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very much uh, assured of the fact that that's where that, that law applies. Now, if it's, if it's partial, you know, there's just, you know, say studs up, it's been framed or yeah. whatever, um, you know. But as far as, yeah, as, as my reading of the law and my understanding thereof is, you know, there's no... I mean, back when I was younger, you know, you should hear breaking and entering, and, and one would just think that someone has to maybe, you know, partially destroy. or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lock. Yeah, like yeah. break the lock or the window or something like that. Yeah. Correct. No, I got you. Correct. I got you. Michael, thanks, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, man. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. The worst part about the verdict down in Georgia in the Ahmaud Arbery trial and Al Sharpton. I gotta listen to that guy now? No. No. And him bringing up Trayvon Martin, it's just... Ugh. He's just... He's he's grotesque. He's disgusting. Al Sharpton is. Just disgusting. Um, Alright, so let me, let me get back to this other, because I do need to pay this off, because this really is important. Michael Schellenberg's book, San Francisco, I have not read it, but subtitled, Why Progressives 
ruins, ruin cities. And he says it really is, it comes down to this victim ideology, and it is as dumb as it sounds. He says everyone's a victim, and you, you're in this sort of like a competition for in victim status. And they perceive, and this is how things get ruined in a city, because you are unwilling to protect citizens of the society if for some reason a victim group can be identified as being damaged by the enforcement of certain law. Right? This does have a, it, this intersects, if you will, uh, critical race theory. Okay? That, that's why this concept should sound familiar. So here is Schellenberg, uh, Schellenberger, sorry, Michael Schellenberger, in an interview that he did with Doug McElway over at the Washington Examiner. As you've already suggested, you were a member of the left. You're now incurring the wrath of the left. What, what, did you have a, a light bulb moment in your head where you suddenly changed or was it a gradual process? Well, I mean, I wrote a book last year called Apocalypse Never, which sort of which did describe more of a gradual process, changing my mind about things like nuclear energy and fracking, seeing them as mostly good for the environment, in part because they reduced air pollution and carbon emissions. I think for San Francisco, I didn't have maybe as big of a change. When I stopped working on this work in the late 1990s, early 2000s, my understanding was that we were proposing rehab as the alternative to prison and jail, not as optional. And so that somehow got changed. We voted for a bunch of laws. There wasn't a single thing that occurred, but it was a series of events. We did decriminalize up to three grams of very hard drugs, including fentanyl and meth, which is enough to kill anybody. We also decriminalized shoplifting, $950 worth of goods. We all voted for it. I mean, 60 passed with over 62% of the vote in 2014. I don't know what we were thinking. The people <laughs> that were campaigning against it, we all viewed as you know horribly you know conservative. But it turned out to be a completely terrible uh, law that passed. So, you know, it was just a, an accumulation of things. I mean, I think I never as a progressive thought that being homeless or being a street addict or open air drug scenes, which is what we should call them. I never thought that that was like progressive. So in that sense, I was never on board with that. But I, I guess I didn't really quite understand that this was fundamentally a problem of addiction and, and mental illness and that it couldn't be blamed on housing, which is you know, it's a problem, but it's not the re- nobody, you know, can't afford rent and then goes and decides to sleep on the most dangerous sidewalks in America. Mm-hmm. Michael Schellenberger. The book is San Francisco. Sorry, San Francisco. Why progressives ruin cities. <clears throat> One of the things he talks about in both of those clips, this uh, this victim mentality. Right. There is actually now some uh, research that has identified what is called a tendency for interpersonal victimhood or TIV. And it is described as an ongoing feeling that the self is a victim, which is generalized across many kinds of relationships. As a result, victimization becomes a central part of the individual's identity. Those who have a perpetual victimhood mindset tend to have an external locus of control. They believe that one's life is entirely under the control of forces outside of oneself, whether it's fate, luck, or the mercy of other people. That is key. It's one of the, one of the worst things you can do to people is tell them that they cannot control their own destiny because then they believe it and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
four main dimensions to this TIV, this tendency for interpersonal victimhood, TIV. Four main dimensions. One, constantly seeking recognition for one's victimhood. I just need to know that I'm being heard. I feel validated. We need to center me and decenter you. That's what that is. Number one main dimension, constantly seeking recognition for one's victimhood. Number two, moral elitism, right? That you are somehow better, you're superior because of your victim status. This is, um, how about, this is my truth. Not the truth. This is my truth. This is my experience. So my experience is somehow more important, more accurate. It's better than empirical data. Number three, lack of empathy for the pain and suffering of others. That's kind of dangerous. Number four, frequently ruminating about past victimization. The sense of moral elitism in this uh, victimhood mindset, those who score high in this dimension perceive themselves as having an immaculate morality, and they view everybody else as being immoral. Moral elitism can be used to control others by accusing them of being immoral, unfair, selfish, while seeing oneself as supremely moral and ethical. Moral elitism often develops as a defense mechanism against deeply painful emotions and as a way to maintain a positive self-image. So as a result, those under distress tend to deny their own aggressiveness and destructive impulses and project them onto others. The other is perceived as threatening, whereas the self is perceived as persecuted, vulnerable, and morally superior. This goes to a a comment, I think it was Ben Shapiro, it may have been Dennis Prager, I forget, who said that we always see ourselves as the victim or the hero, never the villain. The lack of empathy for the pain and suffering of others. People scoring high in this dimension are so preoccupied with their own victimhood that they are oblivious to the pain and suffering of others. Tell me if you saw any of that occurring on social media in the aftermath of the Waukesha massacre. Absolutely, right? Um, Research on competitive victimhood shows that members of groups involved in violent conflicts tend to see their victimization as exclusive and are prone to minimize, belittle, or outright deny their adversary's suffering and pain. Anybody see any of that in the response or reaction to Kyle Rittenhouse crying on the stand? I saw some of that. A group that's completely preoccupied with its own suffering can develop what psychologists refer to as an egoism of victimhood, whereby members are unable to see things from the perspective of the rival group's perspective, or uh, they're unable or unwilling to empathize with the suffering of the rival group, and they're unwilling to accept any responsibility for harm inflicted by their own group. You see how this could be very, very dangerous? Not only do you not see your opponents as not being victimized by you, but you don't even see yourself as being capable of doing the victimization. You don't see any harm that you've inflicted, and you don't accept any responsibility for any harm. That's a problem. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Final segment of the Pete Callender Show before the month of December. The last episode of the month. Um, 
And and by the way, like I know. All right, so Robert called in. He had, he did not call back. But like I don't have any ill will towards Robert. Wait, you're not on the air Monday or Tuesday? Oh, I am. It's the 29th and the 30th. Dang it! All right. <laughs> see, I'm just I'm fake news. Hashtag fake news. My bad. You can't believe. See, to Robert's point, he did tell me I can spread as much BS as I wanted. So. <laughs> do we do a do-over? Like, do you want me to re-rack the bumper music yeah. and just? <laughs> no, no, that's all right. That's uh, that's totally my bad. My bad. All right. Well, I guess I'll have a couple more shows in November. But um, I am not, I am out on uh, tomorrow and on Friday. So uh, I won't be back until Monday. But um, I just want to say thank you to everybody that uh, has welcomed me back to Charlotte. And it's been uh, it's been a very busy and. Uh, and wild few months since getting back. I'm happy to be here, and it's it is a lot of fun. But I am I really am grateful uh, for the gig. I've said this before. Like I, I can't believe that I get to do this every day. It's fun for me. I enjoy it, and I don't know what I would do if I wasn't doing this. And you guys allow me to do this, and uh, there's no way that I can ever repay that. So I just keep trying to do the thing that I suspect you appreciate me doing. So. And at some point, if, you know, all jobs have a shelf life and at some point if this one ends, so be it, right? But I'm going to keep trying to do it uh, the way I've been doing it. So, uh, but no, I have no ill will towards, is that Robert? No. Okay. Uh, I have no, <laughs> no but uh, oh, I, 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 like we have some fun. Yes. Did I take some cheap shots? Maybe, but that's, I, but that's what I do. Um <laughs> So this this tendency for interpersonal victimhood. Oh, and by the way, people say, where where are you getting this from? This is from scientificamerican.com, Unraveling the Mindset of Victimhood. It's a very, very lengthy piece. It's got all sorts of links, so you can go and do, uh, read the research that uh, supports uh, the findings here. Uh, they found that, you know, there are different uh, styles, personality styles, and like uh, anxious attachment this is a particularly strong antecedent or precursor of the tendency for interpersonal victimhood, TIV. Anxious attachment. Okay? Anxious attachment. Anxiously attached individuals tend to be dependent on the approval and continual validation of others. They seek reassurance continually, stemming from doubts about their own social value. This leads to anxiously attached individuals seeing others in a highly ambivalent manner. On the one hand, anxiously attached individuals anticipate rejection from other people. But on the other hand, they feel dependent on those other people to validate their self-esteem and worth. As for the direct link between anxious attachment and the tendency for interpersonal victimhood, the researchers note that from a motivational point of view, the tendency for interpersonal victimhood seems to offer these AA individuals, I'll call them, the anxiously attached, it offers them a framework, seems pretty effective, a framework for constructing their insecure relations with other people, which involves garnering attention, compassion, and evaluation, and at the same time experiencing difficult negative feelings and expressing them within their relationships. So at the group level, the researchers point to the potential role of socialization processes in the development of collective victimhood. They note that 
victim beliefs, as is the case for any other human belief, these victim beliefs can be learned through many different channels like education, TV programs, online social media. Group members can learn that victimhood can be leveraged as a power play and that aggressiveness can be legitimate and fair if a party has suffered. See, so it it gives you cover to do all sorts of stuff. People may learn that internalizing a victimhood mentality can give them power over others and protect them from any of the consequences of online mobbing and shaming that they may impose on members of the perceived outgroup. You've seen all of this happen already. I have, right? This is what we're witnessing. This is what is occurring right now. This this tendency for interpersonal victimhood or at the societal level, uh, collective victimhood. This is what we're seeing. It is a power play. It's a psychological power play. People can learn, they have learned, that this gives them power over others while also giving them protection from the very consequences of their own behavior targeting others. If socialization, uh, yeah, uh, if socialization processes can instill in individuals a victimhood mindset, then surely the very same processes can instill in people a personal growth mindset. So what if we all learned at a young age that our traumas don't have to define us? Who's the Dan Starks, right? He, he's done the, the personal protection classes and stuff. He used to do the segment on TV. I took a concealed carry class with him 20 years ago, I think. Um, don't be a victim. That was his whole uh, strategy. That was his whole mindset and the, the mantra, don't be a victim. So what if you learn that you are not defined by your traumas, that you're not a victim, that it's possible to have experienced something bad, a trauma, but to not let that form your core identity, that it's even possible to grow from that trauma, to become a better person, to use those experiences that you had in your life and use it to work towards instilling hope and possibility to others who are in a similar situation. What if, what if we all learned that it's possible to have a healthy pride for an in-group without hating an out-group? What if we went that route? That it's okay to have pride, and people, I've, I've heard people, you know, criticize, like, oh, I saw someone driving down the road, and they had, you know, all these stickers of, you know, fill in the blank, like usually in the past, it's been you know, like, oh, I was over in East Charlotte and I see the stickers on the cars of the Mexican flags or whatever. And, you know, they should have American flags. Like, well, I've seen people driving around with Irish flags. Like, I, it's okay to have pride in that heritage. I don't, that, that doesn't harm me at all. But it also doesn't require the hatred of an out group, Right. What if we expect kindness from others while also understanding that it pays to be kind ourselves, that no one is entitled to anything, but we're worthy of being treated as human beings? How about that? Does that sound like a good place to work off of? I don't know. Just It sounds like a good place to me. And it sounds like, I don't know, this is advice that's been around for a long time. The psychologist or psychiatrist, rather, Jordan Peterson, talks about this whenever he uh, discusses uh, religion. 
particularly when he discusses it with atheists, which is, uh, or agnostics. But he, he says, if you were to like take away the, the supernatural stuff out of Christianity, just strip all of that out for a moment. If you were to construct a, a code, a set of governance, a way that we can all live together, how would it materially be different? Like, what kind of a society would you want, and how closely would that, that, that set of rules mirror what Christianity is about? And I think that's a pretty good place to start from. I think he's correct about that. And what is it that, you know, we're called to do is to love thy neighbor like you love thyself. Like, that's the, that's the deal. That's the deal. So, and I think if more people, if we all kind of did that, I think we probably would be in a better place. Uh, and I think a lot of people probably would, uh, would have avoided a lot of pain and suffering. Anyway, what do I know, right? Just a radio host. Uh, Tim, I, I only, I got like 30 seconds, so I, I don't, not enough time to be fair to a caller. Uh, I appreciate the call. I appreciate all the callers. I appreciate the emails and uh, appreciate everybody hanging out with me for the three hours every day. I'll be back on Monday. Brett Winterbull is coming up next. On News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Don't break anything while I'm gone. Happy Thanksgiving. Safe travels to one and all. Zipper merge, people. Zipper merge and use your turn signals.